Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to Bible and Banter. Here we are, Mike and Eric, to uh, to to discuss some stuff about God and sin, and just have some some friendly discussion and whatnot. Um, before we get into everything, what's uh, we didn't really have the opportunity to say, hey, what we want to banter about today? Anything anything on your mind? No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, there's the lots. Heck? There's lots on my mind, but not that I want to concern the general public over. Okay, yeah, that's fair. Um, that's really fair, man. I got a couple of things, and I'm interested in your take. So, um, two things, and and they're both kind of like minister related. That I think people would be interested in. I was listening to a podcast. You ever um, listen to Tom Rainer's podcast on? Uh, I forget what it's called. Um, He's got a lot of stuff that he throws his name on, so... Dude, for real. Um, hold on. Well, anyway, uh, Rainer on leadership. So um, he he was talking about what, what he's calling the great reshuffle. Um, because, like, right now we're in the midst of what in popular culture is referred to as the, the great resignation, where a lot of people are resigning from their jobs or, or changing fields and, and those kinds of things. But when it comes to the church and the ministry, he's referring it to the great reshuffle because what he's observed is that a lot of pastors are resigning, but they're they're resigning from their local ministry and then going to do a different kind of ministry or mm-hmm. to a different church. Or, or So like pastors are essentially reshuffling around um, and even members, members of churches are starting to reshuffle. And he, he proposed a theory that um, the neighborhood church is coming back to where it used to be um, back, especially like the first half of the 20th century, the neighborhood church was kind of really important. And then through the seventies, eighties and nineties, it became more of a re- you know, regional churches and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So I found that really interesting, man. Um, what, what, I mean, have you talking with friends of yours and, and colleagues and whatnot? I mean, have you kind of sensed the same kind of thing? Oh, absolutely. I think, yeah, I don't know that. I think some churches have lost people, but, and and to some degree, there's been a loss of people that don't go to church at all, period. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I think people have just migrated to different churches because they've been thinking about it for a while and this made a good, easy time to do it. Um, Or, or there were non, I would say unbiblical reasons to leave that, you know, another church was, stronger in them like whether it's you know this person was more political or less political or or whatever Mm -hmm. uh you know i you know i I would agree that our experience as a a church here and seeing what's happened in other churches a lot of people haven't left the church Mm -hmm. but they've just gone to another one uh for for whatever reason and and basically let's be honest that's been happening that's how most church growth happens anyway um, but this uh, well, just... statistics, st- statistics show that that's how church growth happens in an established church. Right. Um, you essentially, uh, Bill, uh, who is the pastor who recently passed away? It was in 2020 bill, um, up there. He was an AC pastor. Uh, Chadwick, Robert, bill, bill yeah, Chadwick. bill Chadwick actually wrote a book called stealing sheep, um, mm-hmm. which talks about th- when you're, when you're revitalizing or planting a church, what you want to avoid is stealing sheep, seeing essentially sheep go from one fold to another fold. Um, so at least based on the, yeah. the research that I've done, 
um, it, it seems in estab- more established churches, when they grow, um, the older that church is, the more likely that growth comes from transfer rather than new growth. So, um, yeah, so that is, I think that's interesting, Mike. Yeah, and so I'd say the pandemic has just exacerbated that issue. Mm-hmm. It's just made it worse. Yeah, you know what I found interesting? So last night uh, I had a hockey game and we're sitting out in the parking lot after the game and guys are talking about, you know, work and whatnot. And they all work like typical office jobs or field jobs or whatever. And there are a few guys on my team that work in the gaming industry. Uh, By the way, any of you parents who say, tell your kids uh, video games will get you nowhere. I know a bunch of nerds where the exact opposite happened. Like these guys are making a killing working in the video game industry. And um, I was talking with them because in their industry, there's a huge uh, shuffle as far as what employees want in benefits and, and desire. Like there are people that are prominent in their company, like well uh, respected video game designers and whatnot who are like, listen, if you make me come into the office now, like I like working from home so much. If you make me come to the office, I'm quitting and I'll just go to a competitor. So like, so it's just super interesting to see how people are thinking about um, work uh, very differently. And I think it's actually a unique opportunity for the church because as people want to work more remotely, there is an innate need for community that, that people are just wired with God's created us that way. So there's, there's opportunities for us to help establish those kinds of communities. And if it means what, you know, if your church is a regional church where people are, are driving 15, 20, 30 minutes to come to your church, they might decide, listen, 30 minutes is too long. That's not really the community that I live in. Mm -hmm. Uh, Therefore I'm just, I'm going to try and find a church closer to home. So it's all, so it's all built in there. I mean, praise the Lord for that. I mean, to me, that's a very God-honoring decision. So I imagine some of that's going to happen. You know, my own personal stories, you know, we, you know, when my mom died a couple of years ago in the beginning of COVID and we then owned two homes (laughs) or we have, you know, for the last couple of years and, and, and with um, family needs back home, you know, it was God using that to stir in us a, a desire to leave and a calling to leave. So for us, like, I guess I'm part of that reshuffling. Like, I'm not resigning from my church to not do ministry anymore, but it's a Mm -hmm. different kind of ministry. It's church planting, and it's probably going to be some other stuff, too. So it is interesting, man. And I don't know the impact, like, really what COVID has had on that. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure sociologists will be able to tell us here in the next five to ten years as they do their studies. So Mm -hmm. it's interesting. I I wonder. I'd be interested. I kind of had thought, oh, man, I should call. Uh, Justin Nash, our, our resident church health expert uh, in, in the Advent Christian denomination to ask his perspective. Like, are, are, is he seeing that where pastors are moving a lot right now over the last couple of years? So uh, has, has the great reshuffle happened within the ACs because it's happening elsewhere? Mm. So. Yeah, no. And I can see why that's happening. I mean, in all honesty, right before we got on that, you know, pastors reshuffling to other things is very uh, tantalizing Mm -hmm. (laughs) just because of everything. Yeah. Well, it's like, if you think about, well, what is it that you really enjoy doing? Mm. Like, like what, what about pastoral ministry do you really enjoy doing? And then when you ask the question, 
well, can I do that? Not being a path, like not being a full-time paid pastor. Mm-hmm. And, and I think w- when you a- start asking those questions, um, because like, like I'm going to be intentionally co-vocational when we plant the church. Like I, mm-hmm. I want to intentionally not draw full-time income from the church because placing myself in the, in the workplace mm-hmm. will allow me to do a lot of the same things I really enjoy about pastoral ministry but from a different perspective. So, you know, uh, it's people have to answer those questions. It it was also interesting on the podcast this morning that I was listening to, they were talking about across denominations, there's a pastoral crisis. So we talked about the pastoral leadership crisis here in our denomination, which was predicted back 10 years ago, maybe not that long, but Mm -hmm. um, maybe it was 10 years ago in in Dr. Glenn Rice's uh, dissertation. The, on on the pastoral leadership crisis, and it seems like only the last couple of years have we done anything <laughs> with with the alarm, um, and and we're starting to feel the impact of it. So I'm grateful for for men like him uh, to help be the the siren of, of a warning siren for us. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. But they were saying the median age for a pastor across the United States is close to sixty years old. That's across the denomination, across denominations. So yeah. that that's fascinating to me because I mean, in a few years they're going to be able to retire, and there's not because the the Gen Xers. There's that's a smaller uh, generation. There's not as many mm-hmm. people in the Gen X versus Boomers and, and Millennials. So uh, there's there's a huge gap there. Yep. Yeah. So it's interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. Mike, did you read the Julie Roy's article about um, Grace Community Church? Uh, why are you snickering? Uh, yes, I did. Okay. So yeah. I, I so if you haven't read it, I would encourage you to read. Uh, you can go to the RoysReport.com. Julie Roy's is a, is a uh, evangelical author and reporter, journalist who writes a lot about the church and for the church. She's not perfect. Uh, there's stuff that she's written where I've kind of rolled my eyes, but then there's some other investigative stuff that she does that I think has been very important for the church. And this was an article that uh, that was heartbreaking to read. Um, I'm interested in your perspective. It, it was an article, just to frame it for the audience, um, The it's an article about how Grace Community Church, which is John MacArthur's church, John MacArthur is one of you know a few dozen pastors who've had an incredible impact on the church in the last 30 years um how his church seemingly mishandled an abuse case in in their church and they go through that and the impact on the family and at the center of the story was a husband who abused his family and it wasn't until later that they found out there was sexual abuse too and he's been convicted and sentenced to i don't know how long in prison but it's a pretty long time so uh, Mike, what were your thoughts about that? A lot. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest. I've kind of, you know, I, I've been impacted, positively benefited from MacArthur's ministry and teaching over the years. Although I've, over the past, I'd say two to three years drifted away just because of um, the way they communicate the hard mm-hmm. lines on some areas. Um, uh while I try to still listen to people that sound like jerks and take what they're saying, 
take what they're saying seriously and sift it and everything. It's it is different, difficult, and sometimes I'm just I've just got a low tolerance for people, including myself, uh, that just come off as too too harsh, too um, arrogant, too whatever. But mm -hmm. uh, anyway, uh, I read the article and on on one side. I said um, similar to to the Mars Hill podcast, which was phenomenal. I was like. This is one side of the story, mm -hmm. one perspective. Although she had witnesses, she had some corroborating evidence of, of the facts and details. And just like, you know, the Mars Hill podcast had like Mark Driscoll's number two, you know, on the podcast, giving his perspective and it all seemed to line up. And so there, there you know, again, there's one perspective. And then I started, you know, Twitter's the cesspool of interaction. Mm -hmm. Um and unfortunately, I don't think we're ever going to get a real clear picture of what happened and not that we're even owed anything. But um, Phil Johnson and Grace to You uh, Ministries has a low opinion of Julie Royce because of other hit pieces she's published. Well, she wrote a critical article over the I think it was over the summer uh, about how many houses John MacArthur owns and kind and of some nepotism. Yeah. And I, and that made me uncomfortable reading that. Yeah, I, absolutely. Me, me too. And so I'm like, so, so I've got a lot of thoughts. Uh, I, I keep coming back to, it's not my fight. Um, but at the end of the day, one thing that became clear is in today's society, um, if you're going to practice, especially public church discipline, you better be, ready for everyone to hate you mm -hmm. um even yeah. if you were even if you were right but at the same time it looks hindsight that they handle this very poorly and i think this is kind of another example of um you know worshiping you know marriage and keeping marriage is together um almost treating marriage sacramentally Mm -hmm. um you know i mean if if this was even true but the idea of a, a couple in the church saying we'll take your kids go back to your husband was just so short-sighted you know now in in, in defense that couple shared yeah. in the article uh so they're they responded to that sure and they said oh let us just take the kids for the night or something you know something which right. they had done previously right. So I could see in the midst of, of, of all that was going on, how there would be a miscommunication or a misunderstanding. Right. So, right. So I think like, as we read this, we have to understand that people are human and communication is one of the most easiest things to muck up. So, yeah. uh, so that's a challenge, right? It, it, was, it was, it's painful. It's difficult. I, I just, I, I do grieve churches trying to handle things internally that they don't necessarily sh or that they shouldn't necessarily be handling internally, especially when it comes to abuse. Um, and I think it might be because we have a skewed vision of what Paul is saying when saying you shouldn't take each other to court. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, you know, anyway, well, there are, I mean, there are legitimate laws that Caesar's created that mm -hmm. says, listen, if you hate your spouse, you're like, that's illegal, right? If you hate your kids in, in specific ways, that's illegal. You can't do that. You can't put your hands on people in an aggressive right. manner. Uh, so, you know, here's, here's, 
here's what I think I learned from that, right? Uh, there are a couple of things. So if you're I, church discipline is good in public church discipline. I mean, no one ever wants to have to get to that point. Right. But if you're going to do it, and I think you should at some point, there are instances where that's appropriate, mm-hmm. then you better make sure you're right. Mm-hmm. So, so like mm-hmm. they publicly shamed this woman essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and she's the one who brought to the church's attention Listen, my my husband is abusive. Uh, I need your help. And they've essentially said, okay, here's the help we're going to give you. He said he's sorry. You need to forgive him. And forgiveness is to forget that it even happened. Don't ever remind him about it and, and, and act as though nothing ever happened. Dude, that is not forgiveness. That And, and repentance is not, hey, I'm sorry. All right, let's call it a day. I mean, repentance is an active thing. It's not, it, it's, uh-huh. it's, it's ongoing. Right. So I, I totally think like, listen, you, you can always repent. No one's ever beyond uh, God's grace, but you got to show more support for this woman. Uh-huh. If, if we're going to, if we're going to call ourselves complementarian, we better be the type of complementarians that stand up for those who are in need. Right. Uh-huh. And, and, they did not do that with this with this woman, and I feel awful for her. No, it, it, yeah, I would say it's complementarianism potentially on steroids, where the 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 headship authority of the husband is the most important thing to keep intact. It, mm. It's just the way it seems to come off. Um, but I'll, I'll tell you, I even wrestled with how they publicly shared this. At, mm-hmm. at a general gathering of a Sunday morning worship service, communion service. And if, it, if my ministry ever came to the point that we would have to do something like this, I don't know that I would handle it on a Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. I would probably call a special private members only business meeting. Um, yeah. And try to ha- handle it a bit more charitably, um, s- gently. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think I think what we learned I think what we learned is that grace to you is a it does not accurately describe the ministry of Grace Community Church <laughs> or John MacArthur because um, John MacArthur has always been I mean he's a uh, he's wonderful to listen to at times I think he's a faithful expositor he's not without error but uh, you know I think he's done a lot of good stuff but he is not someone that comes across as gracious. And, and, you know, it seems like there's, there's no law gospel distinction. It seems like it's mostly law sprinkling in grace uh, of the gospel. So, so it's not all that surprising to me. Um, But, you know, the, The other thing that I think was important, Mike, that I think is more important for us to talk about is I think you mentioned before, like, oh, do we need to know what happened? Like, do we have a right to know um, what truly happened? I think yes. Hmm. And I think the reason is that the because of MacArthur's ministry being so public, mm-hmm. being, you know, so so it's almost like, listen, if if I invite myself into your living room. And then I act a fool. Mm-hmm. Do I do I not have to give an answer to you? 
You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And he's very much invited himself himself into our our, our ministries and our churches and, and all that. So uh, to me, I think if you're a public figure, um, especially in the church, and you have um, you have some kind of all this stuff could be bogus, right? Mm-hmm. Julie Julie Royce could be off the rails, whatever. Fine, but I think that it, it's the responsible thing. I think it's the godly thing for Grace to you or Grace Community Church and John MacArthur to at least acknowledge what happened and, and give an answer, and not a defensive answer either, not a Phil Johnson kind of answer. Mm-hmm. So yeah, no, yeah, I agree with you. I think that's that's right. The more public your ministry is, the more public accountability you have. Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> I will say this, uh, and this, you know, obviously people are drawing sides. People that already hate MacArthur are laying on thick. Uh, all the people who hate Julie Ro- Roy's or whatever are laying on thick. And so this didn't help to bring clarity. It just divided people and ah. But the one, the one tweet that I saw that I was like, okay, that's good. That's funny. Although it's really not is uh, one guy tweeted. He said, uh, I wish I hated my sin as much as Julie Royce hates John McCarthy. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't the world be a better place? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know what, man? I, I appreciate uh, Royce's, you know, persistence i think mm-hmm. listen if there's an issue uh, write about it fine if there's an issue and there's evidence write about it. bring it to light mm-hmm. you know um evil doesn't like the light right um so I, I think that what we need in in the church is you know we need to turn all the lights on so that there's no more darkness and i think what we've done for far too long is keep the light, keep as few lights on as possible because we're afraid of what we're going to find. And I think that's where people get hurt. That's where abuse gets uh, unreported and, and glossed over. So, you know, I'm thankful that she's trying to, th- trying to turn lights on. I just hope that I, I hope that she's, she's honest and accurate. You know, I, I, and I have no reason to believe that she's not, you, you know, um, and I and I want MacArthur and, and Johnson and all these folks to just listen. If you did something wrong, say it. You don't have to. You don't have to be vitriolic in your response. Just you're the one who decided to have a public ministry like this. Mm-hmm. You know, don't be upset because people are asking questions mm-hmm. like that. To me, that's absurd. So we'll see what happens, man. Um, I pray. I pray the Lord is glorified in the midst of it. Pardon my cynicism. I don't think it. I don't. I don't think he will be. But yeah, no. I think there's too much pride at stake on all sides, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and too much to lose. Mm-hmm. I mean, because I'm. I mean, even with the like, even this plagiarism stuff coming out and this, that, and the other thing. Um. Yeah. By the way, can I just say? Um, I think Christian authors, authors in general, but definitely Christian authors need to treat writing the same way the music industry treats writing and performing. That if a book is written, just like a song is written, that 
a song needs to say performed by lyrics and music by so-and-so like it's all there in the in the pamphlet so i write a song and you know toby keith you know performs it it doesn't mean that he wrote it you know mm -hmm. i think books need to be treated the same way that if you have a ghostwriter uh that name needs to be clearly because um, that's the other thing with that's the big the other big controversy going on with john MacArthur now is uh they're saying that he had ghostwriters for a lot of stuff now now i don't know man i, I i'm hey maybe there has been i mean he has written a ton of stuff uh so <laughs> i don't know yeah yeah i don't know either um and maybe it's just these guys aren't writing but they're putting together all his sermons and everything into books and and so he's well, actually read or he has written or said it. But uh, at the end of the day, you know, skeletons come out of closets and and you can either stay in your. Try to preserve your legacy or just be like, yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm less concerned about the whole ghostwriter thing, because I mean, a ghostwriter knows they're ghostwriting, so sure. they know they're not going to get attribution. They will get paid, right. but they're not going to get attribution. Listen, if that's your thing, that's your thing. Whatevs. I don't care. That's not a huge deal. I mean, if I found out that someone – like a lot of these athletes will, will write books, and I'm sure a lot of those, you know, they tell stories to an author, and the author, you know, goes, writes a book for him and whatnot. I'm not so concerned about that. You know, yep. maybe that's the case with MacArthur. Um, but I am concerned because the same crowd that MacArthur is a part of is is the same crowd that wants Vadi Bakum to be the next president of the SBC. And I know we're having a Christian, but the SBC is very important um, because we run in some of the same evangelical circles, and the SBC is the largest evangelical denomination. They literally have the most influence in Christian publishing. Um, a lot of the, the pastors that you listen to are probably SBC pastors, uh, a lot of our seminaries are, or seminarians might be going to, to SBC seminaries. Some of the, it's just, you can't, you can't escape the grass. So I pay attention to that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And, um, and Vani had some, I love, now let me be clear. I love Vani Bakum. I could listen to him. I love his preaching style. I, I love, I think he makes a lot of good points and arguments on a number of issues there was a lecture he gave a couple of years ago about the authority of scripture that uh, and the reliability of the Bible that has been formative for me. So, so that's just my cards, but he wrote a book called fault lines that I've not yet read because I've wanted to read the CRT resources before reading his critique. Um, and you know, the his book fault lines it's been said that he's lifted some things he's misquoted um the so he critiques uh delgado who is a, a prominent crt person uh or or theorist and um he apparently misquoted him immensely like attributing something to delgado that delgado didn't say and delgado has come out and said listen i didn't say that and they've looked up his work so so bacham said listen he said it in this part of his book or blah 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 and you go to the book and you go wait it's not there and he's not apologized he's not retracted he's done none of that and that's a significant issue to me that is that is hugely significant yeah i uh i actually watched the founders put out like a little thing between tom Askall and another guy and vadi dealing with some of these things and a lot of it was 
it was a formatting issue. Like the, the publisher put it in block formatting. Like it was, he was quoting, but he was actually making a comment mm-hmm. um, type of stuff. And so th- there's deniability here or there, but honestly, I haven't read fault lines either for similar reasons like you is I don't really know what the right definition of CRT is. Well, um, they work. So, so he's part of the, you know, the, the, anti i don't i don't even know but essentially it seems to me that camp they use crt as a catch-all term for anyone who wants to talk about any kind of injustice anytime right Right. so and so i would struggle with that but what what i i i read i just read one little snippet that was quoted by somebody and i'm like man he's throwing a lot of what used to be faithful brothers under the bus right now over this. Yeah. And that breaks my heart. Yeah. A lot of people. Yeah. Because they used to be homies, uh, right? Like, like he yeah. throws Ligon Duncan. Ligon Duncan is. Yeah. He, he's a freaking all-star man. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I, but I also see it happening on the other side of stuff. Like I love the but yeah. it sounds like he, it sounds like he's ready to throw like John Piper under the bus over some of this stuff. Well, I've not yet heard that from, from Thabiti. Well, it's, it, well, it kind of came out like back when, um, John Piper tried to defend Jonathan Edwards. Oh, okay. Yeah. And someone asked, someone asked the BD, <clears throat> like, do you really think John blah, blah, blah. And he's like, you'd have to ask John. And I'm like, man, you, you're not even going to stick up for uh, someone who I thought was your friend. <laughs> yeah, but that's better. I mean, that's but that's better, better than, than yeah. Like, oh yeah, yeah you know, like like so if he if he is on like a prominent podcast or something like that, and they ask him a hard question about a good friend, and you go and you're thinking like, listen, I love this guy, but I'm also very critical of something, sure. um, and I've not yet talked to him about it. Then I'm sure. not I'm not gonna put him on sure. blast right now, right? Like sure. just I just say, hey, you I just feel him. like I just feel like this stuff on both ends of the spectrum, we're we're turning on each other too easily too quickly um, yeah and, and because we're making and you know what i don't really know i mean there are parts of what i've heard from crt that are gospel issues but on both sides of the spectrum if that makes sense like well it's kind of it, yeah. so so mike think about it this way if if a christian it misrepresents the gospel or misrepresents christian teaching but attribute or, or says that it is Christian teaching or it is the gospel. Um, it's really easy for, for other people to be critical of the gospel as a whole and of the church. Right. So, mm-hmm. so if, if you are openly misrepresenting your camp, mm-hmm. then it's really, it's really easy to critique that. So I wonder, like, as I've done some study of CRT, if, if our wide critique of CRT is actually a mischaracterization, those who have appropriated CRT um, or misappropriated it rather. So, so like the origins of CRT date back to like the seventies and, and it's a theory in how to better understand the, like how laws and, and um, sociology, mainly laws have, affected minorities particularly black people um disproportionately to other races 
you know, it's a theory, it's a theory. It's something that we've come up, you know, they've come up with to try to understand and point out certain things. And you go, okay, well, to me, I think that that could be helpful, right? Like you're trying to devise a theory to help us understand how the law disproportionately affects a certain people group. I don't, I don't see how that has anything to do with um, being anti-gospel. But then when you get to the point how some people, it seems, in the CRT camp will say, yeah, so um, the only response to that is that white people have to hate themselves. <laughs> then you go like, whoa, 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 what? Hold on a second. So um, that – and I think, that, I think that the academics, the academic side of this are engaging – on a much better level than the popular theologians. So like Vadi Bakum, um, I don't think is, is it does not seem as engaging in an academic sense. He's engaging more as a polemicist. And I don't think that that's helpful. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting. I mean, as I was t telling someone this, this morning, I was kind of sharing some of the issue with you. It's just every, a, I don't, I don't know why everything has to be so difficult. But then again, life is difficult. People bring their own baggage. And some things are difficult for people, whether we think they should be or not. But then on the other side is just people are just so heightened and in attack mode. Mm -hmm. um, like, like, this is the society that people who like to argue and fight thrive. That's where we are. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's just, and for a guy like me that I'm not a, I'm not a fighter. Um, I might be a defender, but I'm not a fighter. I'm not looking for a fight. I don't really want to fight unless I really actually have to, and it's worth fighting for. Um, I'm most likely going to just let the chickens have their little cockfight over in the corner and I'm going to be like, enjoy it. And I hope you all don't get too banged up mm -hmm. and that there's still something left to offer people who are hurting. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. I, I'm very disheartened at the lack of charity uh, that I'm seeing just, just around and that every, every, even little seemingly little things mm -hmm. be become big things. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's almost, it, so it's like we read something, we read something or hear something that someone says. And instead of asking, what do you mean by that? Or what does that mean? We assume what it means. And then we attack. So it's just, it's painful to watch, man, because there are so many brothers in the Lord who are on both sides of this thing, who are attacking one another. Um, and it's just, it's, un, it's not just unfortunate. It's, it's incredibly troubling. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the, I think the church is going through a radical change. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I do have to leave right at two. So we probably, if we want to okay. talk about the top, the, what we came this here is, for. Well, this is your topic, Michael. Well, you, uh, let's be honest. Most topics are my topics. Cause you ask me, what do you want to talk about? Yeah, man. Um, and so this one just came up in my Sunday school class. I, and I, as I was saying it, I'm like, this might be heresy, but I don't think it is, but it's something I've been ruminating on for a while and thinking a lot about, but I'm just going to say it in my Sunday school class and see what happens. So and you're so, worried. So right now you're about to announce your heresy. Potentially. Yeah. Okay. All right. I hope Bigford's watching. Yeah. 
So, so the question came, the statement I've heard repeatedly, and it came up uh, in my Sunday school class that something to the, to akin to God cannot be in the presence of sin or God cannot, cannot tolerate looking upon sin or whatever. And, and uh, even in my Sunday school class, they brought up the fact that Jesus said, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because they, a lot of people have taught that, that that's God turning away from Jesus because he can't look at him because of his sinful, the, the sin, the sin in him or on him. So are they, are they suggesting that Jesus is not God? Well, there, there's, it, they're not thinking that deeply. Okay. <laughs> so, so, so I, I, I said, you know, I think we need to kind of get away from this, this thought that God cannot be in the presence of sin. Because here's the reality. God is omnipresent, number one. So there's no place that he will uh, not be. Number two, I'm pretty sure that Jesus dwelt with sinful humanity. So you've got God mm-hmm. in the presence of sinfulness. And we also have in Job, Satan, who is kind of like the epitome of sin, comes into the presence of God and has a conversation. Um, and so I was like, we, we, you know, I said, (laughs) I I use this analogy. I was like, we cannot look at sin as if sin is God's kryptonite, that whenever something sinful or a sinful person comes into the presence of God, God like shrinks back in horror or weakness and all of a sudden loses his things, his uh, ability to be God, because he just cannot look upon the sinner. I said, the reality is God's holiness um, and justice and mer- righteousness cannot tolerate sin just having its way yeah, and just yeah. being in existence. And so when God, when Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? It's because not because God is turning away because Jesus is too ugly with sin or too hard to look at. It's because he's turning away in judgment upon sin and the sinner that it's the uh, sin that's been imputed to him. The sin that's been imputed to him. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So so check this, Mike. You literally brought up every single point I was going to bring up. <laughs> even even the illustration of the kryptonite. I was going to mention. Really? <laughs> yes, 100%, man. And as you're going through that, I'm like, dude, he literally read my mind. And we didn't have any discussion about this. No. It was just, hey, let's talk about this. And I was like, yeah, sure, whatevs. So, yeah. Because, uh, that's because incredible. I'm- yeah, people often bring up. Let me see if I can pull it up real quick. Habakkuk one thirteen, uh, and and Habakkuk one thirteen says, "You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he?" Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, people will often take, look, he can't look upon sin. He's got pure eyes. And I actually read that and say, no, what this, what this person is saying is God is so holy and righteous. How can he just look at something and not do anything about it? Mm-hmm. That's more yeah. what that passage is about. Not that yeah. God can't look at sin, but God can't look at sin and then just let it remain. Mm-hmm. Let let it go undealt with, and so ultimately, God has dealt with sin, and that's in His Son Jesus Christ. Yeah. Well, Mike, uh, I don't, I can't disagree with you because we agree a thousand percent on this one. Yeah. Uh, I, it is, it is curious to me. I wonder, 
I wonder if this has its foundations in like the holiness movement, like the, like the thought that, that God cannot be in the presence of sin, because often what I've at least read about the holiness movement is there is a, there's a strong fundamentalist streak um, or not streak, but it's, it's fully founded in fundamentalism in biblicism and uncritical thought. So like, like the immediate, um, like there, you, you, you can't sin because if you sin, then you are removing yourself from the presence of God, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so you have to live a perfectly holy life. Like if you are a Christian, you no longer sin period. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've heard that before. So I, I wonder if that's where it get and, and how that maybe creeps in. So, mm-hmm. so I, I don't know for sure. Like maybe some of our historians, our, our AC historians would be able to, to talk about this a little bit more, but, because we're such a hodgepodge of different, you know, previous streams within Advent Christendom that, you know, maybe that found its way in, you know? So, uh, cause I don't, I don't know if that's just distinctive with your church or if that's prom a prominent thought among ACs, but I mean, certainly to, to say that, that God cannot be in the presence of sin is to deny f- fundamental aspects of his character, you know, can, you know, omnipresence and uh, Mm -hmm. injustice, like consider the white throne judgment. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like how, how can God judge sin if he's not in the presence of sin? I I mean, answer that one for me. Right. Absolutely. And, and so, uh, you know, it even makes me think of second Thessalonians one, uh, one nine where it says, you know, Jesus comes and they, and then he says they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from uh, the presence of the Lord or just, or another translation could be, or destruction that comes from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And so I, I actually wrote a paper, an exegesis paper on that passage basically saying that that really does <laughs> help support the reality of conditional immortality that, mm-hmm. you know, they're destroyed away from and out of the presence of the, of the Lord. But the reality mm-hmm. is um, I, I, God will always have his omnipresence. And so a lot of people that even say a classic traditional view of hell is that, Oh, well, hell's not in the presence of God. And I'm like, how is that even possible? It's not. It's not. And so they will forever be in the presence of God while suffering uh, eternal conscious torment. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, you're going to have to live with that because God is going to be omnipresent in all space, time, whatever you want to, you know, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, but but even in that, I would say that, that it's not that they are out of the presence of God per se, but more that they are removed from uh relationship with god that they are being judged and condemned for their sin that's mm-hmm. not about locale mm-hmm. that's more about relationship and standing before god is mm-hmm. is how i would interpret that mm-hmm. yeah yeah i agree um, mike that's uh yeah that's good man i so how did your people respond to that there was a lot of silence because it's a lot for them to chew on because 
that you know when you I found in pastoral ministry when you start to um, uh, pick at and maybe debunk or deal with common phrases or turns of phrases, um, and you kind of lay out an argument for it, people take a lot of time to chew on it. Yeah, yeah. And that, and that's why we have to, as pastors and even scholars, need to be careful about just flooding people with argument mm-hmm. to like give them some time to chew on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because we can easily just overwhelm with the volume of our argument or with the content of our argument and not really give them a chance to process. So we kind of moved on from there. And I, and I even said, you know what, I haven't talked about this much in the past. And it's, you know, I've been thinking about it for a lot, but I haven't really verified much but this is where i'm leaning this is where i'm going and so i'm going to do some look up and see if i'm being heretical so i hope i'm not being heretical but any anytime i go up against a common turn of phrase or whatever i always kind of footnote it with listen i you know i can be i could be wrong on this <laughs> well here's here i actually mentioned this in my sermon a little bit this past sunday is that we use, we come up with a lot of these terms of phrase or or, or um, uh, cliches within within the Christian church because we have very low expectations. Well, here's, here's- um, so we we don't want people to think critically, so we just give them like some kind of pat answer that yeah. sounds kind of cute and sounds like it answers the question, but when you really break it down, it doesn't. So, you know, like, like I mentioned how people just say whatever they're going through, they'll say, well, you just need more faith. You need more faith. You need more faith. I'm like, listen, you don't need more faith. Uh, because if you just say that you need more faith, you have to ask, what is the object of your faith? And if, if you've not yet acquired an object to your faith then you don't have any faith, you might have some kind of blind faith, which God never asks you or commands of you. He never commands you to have some kind of blind faith. He always provides you a reason to believe something uh, all the way through. The reason I believe in Jesus is because I have the scriptures and that the whole, the scriptures have, have revealed Christ to me through the Holy spirit. I have a reason to believe in him. You don't need blind faith. If you just blindly believe, then you're an idiot. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're just dumb. Um, especially, especially, when God gives you a reason to believe, mm. yeah. you know, uh, <laughs> you know, he shows us the money, man. <laughs> he shows us the goods. Absolutely. So, uh, so when it comes to a lot of these cliches, a lot of, all it is is stuff that's come up over the last century of people not wanting to do the hard work of understand, of asking the hard questions. And then when, when, um, leaders in the church, whether they're professionally trained or not, they just, instead of really answering the hard questions and digging into it, they feel like they just have to have an answer for everything, which is absurd. Yep. You don't need it. If I have a new Testament question, I go consult a new Testament scholar, right? right. An old Testament scholar might be, he probably be able to answer the question. Maybe Mike is able to handle the question or, or whatever, but I'm going to go look at the people who've really, really studied this thing. You don't have to have an answer for every question. Right. Yep. And, and saying, I don't know, let me, hey, I'm going to study mm-hmm. that a little bit more. Give me a month. Mm-hmm. That's better than, oh, yeah. just believe more, man. Believe what? Sure. What you... Sure. So. 
Yeah, because we're oh. actually that's I'm loving that Sunday school class because we're actually going through First and Second Samuel, and a, a couple things have happened where we're actually a couple weeks behind, um, because people are are asking good questions. Like we had mm-hmm. to deal with, you know, why did God have to send, you know, Israel sinful as they were to wipe out an entire like say like basically the judgment of the Malachites. Mm-hmm. You know, and why did why did he have to have people do that? Why didn't God just do it himself? You know, and so we wrestle we we wrestled with that and, and the reality that God does what's the difference between Israel doing it and Islam trying to do it today, uh, type of deal. Like like what what's going on there? And I made a and, and I tried to again answer the question of why did God have Israel do it rather than just doing it himself, even though, where sometimes God does just do it himself Mm -hmm. um and i said well god seems to have set up his normal operation to do things through his people Mm -hmm. and i said i think that is what it actually means to be the image of god Mm -hmm. in the garden the image of god is not because we look a certain way or because we have intellectual capacity necessarily because there's mice that can reason their way through a maze there's dolphins who can you know, do things. Um, so intellectual capacity and ability to create or the way we look, those all might be part of it, but really to be made in the image of God is to be God's representative on earth mm-hmm. to image yeah. him to a world. <clears throat> and that includes the work mandate, the multiply mandate and all of this mm-hmm. to, to tend to the things of this earth mandate. And so yeah. God calls us to do his stuff on earth sometimes he circumvents that and does it himself uh but mo- much of the time he uses us as his axe to the base of the tree yeah that's good well mike uh why don't we why don't we conclude i know you say you gotta leave right at two hey yeah. just so so everyone knows we're gonna take the next few weeks off probably probably at least three or four weeks uh because i'm gonna be moving and and all that's entailed with that so uh some some of my equipment I got to pack up, <laughs> so I got to pack up my equipment and and uh, unload the equipment and all that stuff. So um, hopefully uh, we'll see. Uh, I don't know exactly when, but it should be you know by first week, first or second week of April, I assume. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, cool. Well, God bless you guys. We'll see you in a few weeks. Thanks for the topic, Mike.